Hi everyone, welcome back to Psyched Convos on Psychology, Relationships, and Personal Growth. I'm Nicole. And I'm Laura. And today we have a very special guest joining us. We are going to be talking to Dr. Patricia Dixon. So before we dive into the episode today, I just wanted to give you guys a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and also give us a follow on Instagram. We're at the Psyched Framework, and we are also hosting another challenge. Um, Last month in May, we did a 13-day self-esteem challenge, and it went so well. So we are going to be doing another challenge this month, starting on July 13th. It's going to be a nine-day confidence challenge. And we are so excited about this. We know that it's super needed. So if you have a hard time trusting yourself, making decisions, if you're a big people pleaser, if you're scared of putting yourself out there and really going after what you want, this challenge is definitely for you because we are going to go in depth on everything you need to know about confidence and self-esteem and how you can grow and maintain it. So if you want to increase your feelings of confidence, um, learn to boundaries in your work and personal relationships, And if you really want to truly believe in yourself and have the confidence to go after your big dreams and succeed, then definitely take a look. Um, We are going to be hosting it in the Psyched Facebook group once again. So if you're already in the group, you don't have to do anything. Um, But if you are not in the group, there is a link in the show notes to join the Facebook group for that challenge. It's all going to be starting on July 13th. So hope to see you in there. Hi, Patricia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you joining us today. Um, I think this is going to be a super interesting episode and something that we haven't covered before. And I think you're going to be bring a really great perspective to it. So if you could just go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone, just give a little bit about you. Sure. Um, Again, like you said, my name is Dr. Patricia Dixon. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm also a professor. Um, I'm in the Tampa Bay area in Florida. And I see a broad range of clients, primarily adolescents and adults. Um, As a professor, I'm a professor for students who are in a graduate school program in Tampa. And the area of specialty there is for um, diversity. And so um, recently, I wrote a chapter that's going to be published in August that I'm very proud of. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's on colorism among Black and Afro-Latino populations. And then in addition to that, I also have um, a podcast of my own called Healing Mentality. So I stay busy, um, but it's all things that I love and have passion about. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that one of the topics that you really wanted to touch on was racial identity. So can you go ahead and explain a little bit more about that? So one area that I've been studying for a a really long time, like since probably undergrad, is the concept of racial identity, specifically Black racial identity. Um, And in fact, I recently did a podcast with Dr. William Cross, who came up with the most probably widely known Black racial identity model, the Nigrescence model. And what it basically does is it talks about this different aspects of um, uh, an individual who's Black and how they feel about their race, and then how they feel about their race in relation to others, as well as how they feel others perceive their um, racial makeup. And it's basically this idea and thought that there's different stages that people go through 
um, that start with the pre-encounter stage, where that's when somebody who is Black um, doesn't necessarily realize that there are different oppressions in the world related to their race or ethnicity. Um, then they move into the encounter stage, which is where they have some sort of insta instance or incident where either they or um, they have either multiple or one incident where they experience um, some sort of racial discrimination or witness racial discrimination. And then the third phase is this immersion immersion where they start exploring ways to um, learn about black history, about what it means to have black culture. And there's somewhat of this dichotomous thinking between black and white. Um, then there's this internalization phase where we're in the, um, in the immersion immersion stage where there's that dichotomous thinking, the internalization stage is where they start to integrate um, this aspect of being black where they might have this um, more broader perspective of what it means to be black versus a more narrowed thought. And then there's finally the inter internalization commitment stage where they're able to not only um, be comfortable with what it means to be black and define what it means to be black for themselves, but also be okay with um, those who are of the other race, particularly white individuals. And racial identity, like when you look at identity development, we all go through it. And particularly if you look at Eric Erickson, it's during the adolescent stage. However, for those who are ethnic minorities, there's an additional stage of identity development and that's the racial identity. Yeah, that's that's really um, so so very interesting because obviously I, I think as being a, as a white person that is something that wouldn't doesn't occur, you know, growing up that that, that there's this added aspect to who you are uh, in the stages of development. So so that's so interesting and so enlightening. So thank you so much for explaining that. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what factors play into the racial identity. Yeah, there's a number of different things. Um, one, including like racial socialization. And so racial socialization is something that many um, people of color experience. And it's where their parents are kind of telling them this process of American society. Um, it's a level of intersectionality in terms of oppression versus privilege. And so for a person of color, it's the socialization of recognizing not if you experience discrimination, but when you experience mm -hmm. discrimination, knowing that that isn't what needs to define you, but it's something that you have to understand how to navigate through because it's a part of the society in which we, we live in. And so previously there used to be all of this research that um, sort of spoke to this question of a negative self-esteem or negative self-concept when it came to um, black people but people in color in general but um a lot of that methodology behind that research was flawed because when they did more research that was done by individuals who represented those populations what they found is that racial identity isn't connected solely to what other people think about you um it's also what you think about yourself and what you're taught about yourself and so when there's this community of um, Black individuals 
and there's this promotion of what that means to be black and pride in being black all of that goes into one's identity however if somebody is on an end where all they see are these negative images and negative projection of what it means to be black then that impacts identity as well yeah that makes a lot of sense that it takes those two different things to kind of create that and play into it as well into the racial identity but yeah thank you for sharing that that's um new for me to learn about and obviously like you said we all go through it but there's a little extra added layer when you are a minority so i think that's definitely important to keep in mind and touch on um, so we wanted to also dive into you a little bit about parenting and um, how we teach about race and things like that because obviously we are a mother-daughter uh, team. So, Which I love, by the way. I think that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we would love to talk a little bit about how that kind of gets passed down um, from generation to generation and how parenting can really have an effect on that. So this kind of relates to that concept that I said a moment ago of racial socialization. And what I found is just about every, not only family member, but friend, um, client, that's a person of color, all went through this process of racial socialization in which their parents, again, taught them what it means to be their race and ethnicity in the context of American society. But then when I have all of my white friends, um, white colleagues, um, they haven't had that same process. And among my family and friends who are persons of color, we talk about race all the time. Like it's a, it's a, a topic of discussion all the time. We're very comfortable talking about it. But what's fascinating is I, I've learned that for many white people, if not most white people, there's not that same conversation and so um, I'm loving what's happening right now because I'm having conversations with my white counterparts that I never get to have um, for whatever reasons. And now it's like, let's dig deep. So right. I think when it comes to parents, um, for people of color, they talk about race already. And the reason for it is because the parent has to prepare their child for the discrimination that they will face. Um, for white parents who are talking to their children about race, which I hope they'll start doing more of, a, mm -hmm. I think the best approach is an open conversation. Previously, I think people took this approach of um, a colorblind approach. And that's problematic. And I think that that's well intended of don't see color. But if somebody comes to me and they say, oh, I don't see your color. And I'm like, well, why not? Because when I looked in the mirror, I saw it and it was beautiful. <laughs> so we don't want it to be not seeing color as much as don't judge people based on the color of their skin. Um, so it starts with having a conversation of, yes, there are differences and those differences are okay. And you don't have to feel threatened by them, but you can embrace them because the, the differences are a beautiful way to, to learn in life. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like, I mean, that is just so interesting, because you're right, I think a, a lot of times it is, people will say, well, I don't see color, mm -hmm. and, um, and then that tends to be probably more how white people might approach for their children, but to definitely say, yeah, there's, 
we we are different colors and um, and there's differences, but like you said, kind of incorporating that we can learn from each other and um, not judge and, and all that. I think just that's really a, yeah, a, a more open approach, a more inclusive approach of everything. Yeah. And it is. And again, I think that it's not about it being, um, it's well intended. Um, but when there is that thought of, I don't see color, it neglects to acknowledge that a person of color has gone through life in a way where they've experienced discrimination and hurt and it's um, dismissive of that experience. And so it, it comes from a place of, of a lens of privilege and un, un, a lack of understanding of that privilege. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems I, I, like it's um, invalidating mm -hmm. the, it, and exactly. ignoring it kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did um, in, in my schooling did um, have a multicultural um, a class and I just remember so well seeing it was a documentary and I wish I would have, I wish I could remember what it was, but they had maybe four or five, it was men, but different races and had them all um, talking together. And it was just so eye-opening to hear the experiences of the different races and then the white person and their response. And it really opened my eyes to see how different their, their life, you know, people of color, their life is. Um, and, um, and then even just recent, not too long ago, but one of my, uh, one of a client that I had with that was um, uh, Mexican. Uh, he shared with me how when he go went into a drugstore, he sees people um, watching him. Mm -hmm. and, oh, and I know him, of course, so he's a super man. And um, yeah, and so my heart broke when I, when I heard that and that he, he worried about his children because of that. So, Well, and you bring up two things that I think are so important. I know the documentary that you said, the same one that we show in our graduate okay. today. But the crazy part is that documentaries had to have been done, I think, if I remember correctly, in the 80s, I want to say. Wow. But the scary thing is everything that they talk about is still mm -hmm. relevant today. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's called Color of Fear. And okay. it is the most amazing film ever um, that really highlights a true discussion among diverse people. And they're all males, but all diverse um, ethnicities and races that um, is so raw that mm. it every time I see it, and I see it every year because I, I play it for my, my students yeah. every year, it, I find and I take something new away from it every single year. I am so glad you were able to tell me the <laughs> Searching my brain, so thank you so much. <laughs> no problem, and, uh, and as you were talking, the minute you said I was holding my tongue to not interrupt because I'm like, it's color of fear, and it's yeah. the best documentary of of a, a raw discussion of race yeah. and the one white guy that you're talking about and his response to it was this defensiveness. Yeah. And, and then he got to a place where he was moved to tears because they asked, what if what, if what we're saying is true? What yeah. if that's the real experience of a person of color in America? Mm -hmm. And he was like, then that'd be awful. And it's like, yeah, it is awful. Yeah. Um, it yeah. is awful to to have um, this level of dehumanization based right. on your race and ethnicity. 
Right. And like you right. said with your client, that client, and this is true of, I don't have children yet, but one day, God willing, I will. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I fear having to have the same conversation with them that my parents had with me about the first time you get called the N-word, this is how you handle it. Mm -hmm. When you're driving in a car, you have to be careful because if you don't, they will shoot you all out of fear of your color. And these are the conversations that my parents had with me, my older brother, my older sister to protect us. Mm -hmm. And um, as they said it, I look back and I didn't know it at the time, but it's this serious conversation um, that comes with a level of pain because it's a parent not being able to protect their child mm -hmm. from the um, racism in life that, that, that could be, you know, result in death. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I think that is something that we truly don't um, look at, uh, you know, uh, white people in terms of, you know, you think maybe, okay, well, they had low economic status or whatever, they had the hardships and whatever, but it is still very different if you're mm -hmm. a person to, or a person of color to experience that and then all this other this other level on top of it yeah well and you're talking about the intersectionality piece and i think that's where when white people have an issue of understanding white privilege i think that's where it comes from it comes from this piece of well are you saying that if i have white privilege that that means that i didn't struggle in life and mm -hmm. if they're coming from poverty they're like yeah i struggled to attain and achieve the things that i have but it's this intersectionality where it's like even with that struggle, being white gave you an advantage because of the long history of, you know, oppressive, systematic oppression. It's this piece of, even with that struggle, there, there's been a, a head start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's just that extra layer that we never have to think about at all. And that just doesn't, and yeah, like you said, exactly. Like, we just automatically have a head start. We're automatically a leg up um, in anything that we do pretty much. And I think that becomes the other thing is that then people are stuck with, okay, if that says that, then, then what do I do? Or they start feeling these feelings of guilt. And I'm always like, the guilt doesn't get anybody anywhere. So it's like, don't feel guilty for having a privilege that you didn't ask for in the same way that I didn't ask to be denied the privilege. It's instead this matter of what can we do to right the wrongs of the past, meaning how do we do advocacy for one another? How do we have allyship for one another? Yeah, I think that is, describes it perfectly, yeah, because there is nothing we can physically do about it. So we have to kind of work with what we have and move forward from there. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit into your work on diversity. So can you just talk a little bit more about kind of what you do around diversity and what's something people might be su surprised to hear? So for, in particular, I, um, I teach a course and I co-teach it with another professor and him and I call ourselves like a really great pair, me being um, black female, him being gay white male, um, we just are able to, to capture so many levels of diversity through a personal lens, um, as well as the objective lens. So we bounce really well off of each other. And, you know, as you know, um, most 
graduate school programs have a diversity class that's only a semester, if not just a summer um, mm -hmm. semester. And our course is a year long semester. So we really have this experiential um, approach that we take that, that lets people really um, gain some self-awareness in order to then acquire knowledge about other cultures and then know how they perceived those other cultures and where, um, how they relate to the other cultures. Mm -hmm. So our whole approach is experiential. I feel personally when it comes to diversity training, that's the only um, that's the only way to really get it is to walk yourself through this path of first self-awareness and then acquire different knowledge about um, populations and then the skills. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a number of different activities uh, because the uh, professor that I work with, his name's Dr. Howe. There's a number of activities that him and I engage our students in. And then when we do um, trainings outside of the school, the same type of thing where we engage individuals in really gaining like an immersive experience where it's like, what is it like to be the other? What is it like to sit with the pain of the other? What is it like to share your pain? So we, 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 we put people in their feelings <laughs> in, their, in our approach. Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it. Cause yeah, I, when I went through school, you're just learning about it in a classroom setting. You're just sitting there, um, not experiencing it, which I think is definitely the key here in how to start making changes. Yeah, I think I think it's so important. You know, we don't, you know, like you said, Nicole, you're learning about it, but you're not actually experiencing it. And I think that is just a huge difference, you know, to actually be able to, in some, in some capacity, put yourself in that other person's shoes to really experience. And I, I think that's so, yeah, that's something that um, if you can do that, obviously has a much better, bigger impact uh, on the student or whoever. Yeah. And the way we start off the, the course is we have students write out what their stereotypes are. And you can imagine how um, vulnerable they have to be, one, mm -hmm. to acknowledge the fact that, oh, I hold these stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And I always start every class telling them the same thing. I say, this is not your normal um, graduate course. This is a course that involves you, your thoughts, your feelings, and it's um, heavy, but I tell them expect to be offended by something someone else says and also expect to say something that's offensive to someone. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, but that gets us all in the same boat because ultimately all of us can prepare to both be offended and offensive, but that's how we learn and grow. Um, and then we also have our students do an immersion where based on those stereotypes, whichever stereotypes they have the strongest and most uncomfortable um, feelings about, we ask them to create three activities that they can do that allow them to have interaction and contact with that population to help dispel those stereotypes. Oh, sounds like an awesome class. I wish I was taking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's awesome, but at the same time, they all love it after but while yeah. they're going through it, they're like, oh my gosh, this is awful. But only yeah. because it is an emotional roller coaster because these are heavy topics that aren't, they're, they're personal to us. It's like, it's part of our identity. 
And then when you start realizing certain thoughts and beliefs that you've held that have been hurtful to another population, then you have to deal with and work through all of those feelings too. Yeah. 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 Um, so what are you most curious about right now or something new that kind of you learned recently of surrounding diversity? So this is what I'm most curious about. And I keep asking the question. I have my own theories and people have said some things that I agree with, but what we're seeing in society right now for any person of color is nothing new. We know, oh, these police shootings. Yeah, that's why my parents, you know, however many years back, cause I'm not that old, but however many years back, how they, you know, prepared me because they knew you potentially could get hurt by the police who are supposed to protect and serve. So it's nothing new for us. But the one thing that I think is just different is that there's so many, you know, for lack of better description, now woke white folk. <laughs> and I, I'm loving it. But I'm wondering what has made people, white people, become so aware because people keep telling me, well, it was just the atrocity of seeing George Floyd. When you watch that eight minutes and 46 seconds of a man's knee on this black man's neck to the point where his body becomes limp and then to the point where he's unconscious and he's, he's killing him. They were like, and with, with no feeling on his face as he's doing it, that that's something that prompted people to be um, upset and aware. But then I look at Emmett Till, and Emmett Till is to me, well, well, let me say George Floyd to me is the modern day Emmett Till, because that's an image that went around, you know, it was on, I think it was Jet Magazine maybe, but it went around the entire United States, but we still didn't have that same impact. So I'm just wondering what's different about today that's making more white people become active or aware yeah. right and, and it's not like this is the first incident like this either there's been video footage and pictures of things before so it, it is I'm curious too I don't know the answer but um, I think that is a really interesting point to bring up yeah possibly social media is so much more part of our lives that it gets the, all that that image gets transferred so quickly and to a wider population I would imagine and my thought is being in this COVID situation, you know, um, people are, are home and, and doing less. And so it becomes such a prime focus, you know, you really can focus on it now. So, and probably people were ready to because they're bored. <laughs> <laughs> right, like I got to do like, something. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that's part of it. But yeah. I, I believe wholeheartedly that the, the, the main catalyst there has to be COVID and just, I think it was today, maybe, I don't know, the days blur, but just recently, you know, I was doing some research on the Spanish flu and what I realized about the Spanish flu, which was the, you know, pandemic itself too, um, is that that aided in the women's civil, uh, women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. And I just saw that tonight too. Yeah. And so it put more women in the workforce. So I'm looking at it like when there's a pandemic combined with a movement, do we tend to have more effectiveness? I mean, it shouldn't take that to make some, you know, a movement work, but mm -hmm. it's just making me wonder, is that what's causing the, the, the involvement of um, more diversity for this movement, this person? Yeah. yeah, 
yeah, very it would be interesting to do a study and kind of to, to see that correlates and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, based on that finding, it seems like it probably is a pretty, a pretty good guess as to why it happened. Yeah. Because there has to be something because again, there, this is not anything new. And so, it, but it's the first time, the only thing that's new about this movement versus the civil rights movement is the fact that there's more diverse participation in advocating for change. Mm -hmm. And so it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Which, is, which that's, that's so, that's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. that's, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, how has your life changed by applying the work that you've been teaching so around the diversity and everything? I, I have to say, in all honesty, I've loved talking about diversity since I was a little girl because my, my family, we moved a lot. And so with every move, there were new people. So that presented the opportunity for new experiences. And so for me, I've always had like a curiosity for diverse populations and why people think and operate the way that they do. But I have to say in the more recent work as a professor, um, as well as the different presentations that I've done and the trainings that I've done, I think that the way that it's impacted me is um, one, via self-awareness in terms of that I'm a constant work in progress myself and that I have to consistently work on myself to address whatever biases I may have. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece is this shared experience of bias that makes me more, um, I guess for lack of better description, forgiving of others, because I have students who will say, and Thanksgiving is the time, because we've, we've had them since like August, September, and then they go home to visit their family, you know, for Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden they're talking about Thanksgiving being different than, um, what they were brought up learning. They're like, how do you think Thanksgiving feels for those who are Native American? And then the family table gets quiet. <laughs> so what I've learned is that students then struggle when they say, what do I do when my family is stuck in a bubble of prejudice and they don't even know it? They're like, should I stop being, should I stop talking to them? And I'm like, no, that's your family. And so I think what I've learned is how to how to understand that we've got to meet everyone where they're at with the recognition that we all walk down a different path that has shaped the way that we think and what our beliefs and values are. And it's not until we are shown something different that we begin to think something different and we can't be shown it just once. It's got to be a consistent um, work in progress, like myself. Right. Right. Trisha, what do you do in your own life to continue to learn to stay on top of things? So personally, I try to make sure that I do, I do have diverse like friends. So not just professionally, um, but even in my personal life, making sure that I'm not surrounded solely with the same bubble. Um, and I'm, I'm working on something that I'm not going to speak much about, but it, it's a book. Um, and it's, and I'm excited about it. It's, it's almost done to be sent to an editor and my hope is to get it like actually out or available in the next like month. That's my hope, we'll see. But, um, but that writing it, and especially it's been prompted by the things that I'm seeing now has helped me realize, okay, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm constantly 
challenging my own thoughts, my own beliefs and having an open mind. And one of the ways too is through the same way I have my students do immersions, I do my own immersions. Um, that's what keeps me in a place of, you know, constant growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super important. I, not just for the topic of diversity, but just in general for being a human who is trying to grow and learn. So I really like that. Um, can you share beyond that? Because I think that's a tip within itself, <laughs> um, immersing yourself with uh, different types of people. Um, but can you share another one to three biggest tips for people on what we can do to create more awareness around the subject of race and diversity? So the first one is being open. And that again is this piece of realizing that just because you've walked through life a certain way doesn't mean everybody else has walked the same way. And so have an openness for difference, recognizing that that difference doesn't mean better or worse, but it just means different. Mm -hmm. And then I would say the second piece is um, a willingness to start having conversations. I think that that's the thing that people tiptoe around. I can't count how many times that I've been around somebody who's um, white or of another ethnicity and they'll say, they like stutter in saying black. And I think it's because they're like, do I say black or do I say African-American or do I say <laughs> person of color? I don't know which direction to go, but, but be willing to take the you know, risk or allow yourself to be vulnerable to have those difficult dialogues. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is, you know, yes, we all have gone through school and school taught us some things, but as a person of color, I was well aware that I was only taught part of the history because at home, my parents taught me the other part of the history. And so, you know, we've got all this stuff going on right now with statues being taken down and people have these mixed feelings of that's erasing history. And, and I have the mixed feeling too of like, it is in some ways taken away history but I believe in, in painting the full picture of history, because for me, those statues had, had those individuals won and been victorious, I'd be a slave. Why would I want to celebrate that? And so that gets to that piece of having an openness to knowing people have had different walks. It gets to a piece of understanding the dialogue of I can understand why somebody else would want to preserve the history there. Um, but I want them to understand that it's an incomplete history. And then that third piece of acquiring knowledge, like I said, in school, you're taught some things, um, but it's not the complete history. And so read some books that have to do with, you know, what was the Native American experience other than what you're taught in school? What is the Black experience other than what you're taught in school? Um, so the education piece, read books by authors that look different than you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I wish, uh, I wish our education system, I hope it gets overhauled so that it does incorporate a more full picture mm -hmm. so that we get a more whole, whole view about what, what history has been and, and moving forward as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. So our last question for you is where can people find you and learn more about what your work is and what you're doing? So I am available on social media, both Instagram and Facebook. For Instagram, it's uh, Dr. Patricia Dixon. On Facebook, it's Dr. Patricia S. Dixon. And then I also have a website, www.patriciasdixon.com. If you notice, theme 
it's my name. <laughs> so, so it should be easy to remember. Yeah. Um, and yeah, those, that's, those are the ways that people can reach me. Awesome. And I'm super excited to, I'll keep an eye out for your book. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited yeah. to see when that yes. comes out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so wonderful awesome. to talk with you. You and, guys uh, too. And I just really want to say one thing is, you know, mm-hmm. and I told you this, Nicole, when we first spoke, spoke is I love the fact that you guys are mother daughter pair doing this together. And I tell people all the time, like I have a vested interest in mother daughter relationships because I loved my mother as much as I did. And so to see mm-hmm. that it really like warms and opens my heart. And it also, I love the fact that you guys wanted to do this particular podcast because it's that piece of you guys having that dialogue about race, about ethnicity, about the things that lead to growth. So thank mm-hmm. you for letting me be a part of this. Oh, oh, of course. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We hope this episode was super eye-opening for you and brought a different perspective that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And hopefully you learned something new. I know that we both did. So We were super grateful to have Dr. Patricia on and you can also go give her a follow and listen to her podcast as well. It has a lot of interesting topics. It's similar to ours. So if you like ours, you'll definitely like hers. And um, also don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to our podcast and uh, follow us on Instagram at the Psyched Framework. And once again, we are doing a nine day confidence challenge. It is starting in 10 days on July 13th. And we are so looking forward to it. We know that it's going to be super beneficial to anyone who lacks confidence, who has fears and doubts and worries and things like that, that get in the way of really going after what they want and achieving the goals that they set for themselves and really living the life they want. So if that sounds like you and you'd be interested in joining, it is completely free and it is in our psyched Facebook group. So all you have to do is join the Facebook group for that. We're looking forward to seeing you in the group for the challenge. And we'll talk to you next week.